Hello, and welcome to this conversation with Director of Children's Rights Organisation, then before us, Katie Faust. Thank you very much for chatting with us today. Great to be with you. Thank you. The joy is mine. Yeah, well, you sent me an advanced copy of your new book, Raising Conservative Kids in a Woke City, which you called that I did also read your other book, Then Before Us. I admit that I had a very busy reading schedule, so I managed to just finish it before we've sat down. But it was brilliant. So I think it was one of the best researched arguments in favour of a children's rights charter, a kind of... Uh, declaration of dependence, if you will, and the research that you've done on the surrogacy industry, on big fertility, I advise everyone go out and read it, if not just for the case studies alone, because they're harrowing and compelling. So first and foremost, thanks very much for doing that. For those who aren't familiar with your work, uh, one, they should go and watch your appearance on Timcast, but two, do you mind dressing us down on what it is exactly that you do and why? Yeah. Uh, I got into this during the marriage debates where uh, everybody was discussing the definition of marriage. And for me, um, when I saw the other side advancing their case based on the argument that, um, you know, kids don't care if they have two moms or two dads. They love it. You know, everything's great. But what that functionally means is kids don't care if they've lost their mom or dad. That's what when you're looking at a picture of a child with two moms or two dads. You're looking at a picture of a child who has lost their mom or dad. And I had worked with kids long enough to know that losing a mother or father is not only something that at minimum children are curious about, but usually that absence inflicts a lifelong wound. So to me, um, all of us understand how risky it is to get involved in these battles around uh, sex, gender, uh, relationships, like you will lose friends. It will create family tensions. And I personally just was not willing to pay the price until I saw them in essence weaponize some of the greatest childhood wounds that anybody can experience. So that's when I started speaking up and really talking about why marriage itself was a matter of justice for children, um, that children do have a right to their mother and father, that marriage is the institution that unites the two people to whom children have a natural right. Um, but then I saw all these other areas of marriage and family, whether it was talking about divorce or normalizing cohabitation or polygamy, whether it was talking about the shift away from the child's best interest in adoption towards an adult-centric model of adoption. And then, of course, the world of reproductive technologies, which is this, honestly, this dystopic marketplace that commercially and intentionally separates children from one or both of their parents, genetic or birth parents, uh, right at the moment of conception. So what we do with them before us is we say all of these different issues from <clears throat> surrogacy to cohabitation to divorce to modern families to marriage, they're not different conversations. They are all manifestations of the same question, which is, are you respecting or are you violating the rights of children? And at them before us, we think that all adults should conform to the rights of children right? Single, married, gay, straight, fertile, and infertile. No adult has a right to separate a child from their mother or father just because they have the feelings or a certain identity or a certain longing or desire or pain or sorrow or whatever it is. We think that all adults should do hard things on behalf of children because the only alternative is for children to do hard things on behalf of adults, and that's an injustice. So that's that's what I got for you. Every conversation, every 
question that you asked me, I am going to do my best to recenter it around the rights and well-being of children, for them to be the focus of the conversation, not what the adults are going through, which assuredly are going to be some level of hardship or longing. Um, and we are going to advocate on behalf of the rights and well-being of children in all of those different issues. Yeah, I think that's really important as well, because with the secular mythology of our age being that of the autonomous, self-legislating, sovereign liberal subject, kids don't really fit into that framework. It, it seems, this is what I got from your very novel way of framing the debate, that the inflection point where you become an adult is where you start taking on responsibilities to dependent others, particularly to children who are the only people that don't have a say in entering a relationship. They don't get to pick who their mother or father is. So you should act as if, if they could choose, they would choose you because you are the best to them and for them. And so we have that, de that uh, dependent obligation placed upon us by the presence of children in our lives. Therefore, we should live up to that obligation and so they have a natural right to us. Now, I, I like the framing that you've put forth there. I like that you do come at it with a theological angle, but it, it appeases to the people who aren't yet convinced by the Christianity which helped make Britain a great place and helped found America. But I know that you ground your argument a lot in social science. So you've already raised divorce, particularly fatherlessness, all those sorts of things. What were the impacts of family breakdown that you found that felt that you needed to make this case in the public sphere? Well, and to be clear, uh, I am a Bible thumping like nutcase. I, I am as religious as they come. My husband is a Baptist pastor. Um, you will not find one word of scripture in my book. Not one. We don't use, we're not appealing to special revelation when it comes to making the case for children's rights. You don't need to. We are making a natural law argument, right? And natural law is this kind of universal philosophical um, framework derived from what is observable in the natural world. And we reinforce it through social science. But the main thing that we do that nobody else has done is we have actually collected the stories of children raised in these modern families so you can look them in the eye yourself and say, did love make your family? And the answer is no, loss. Loss made their family. So um, what are the issues that are the most compelling? Ultimately, and this is the whole, everything hinges on this. Everything hinges on this. And that is that biology is hyper relevant in the parent-child relationship. Now that flies in the face of the cultural mantras that we have been endlessly reciting since the sexual revolution. It rebukes the major legal changes, the major legal overhauls that we have made to the family since no-fault divorce in the 60s. And it absolutely destroys the idea that children are items to be cut and pasted into any and every adult relationship as long as they can drop the contract and purchase the sperm, egg, and womb. So biology, we spend chapter two of the book talking about why biological parents are the most connected to, invested in, and protective of kids. And here, there's no paucity of data. The reality that biological parents offer something distinct to their children is an absolute statistical certainty. We don't need to guess about the advantages conferred on children when they're raised by their own mother and father. And 
I will say this as an adoptive mom. I say this as a woman who was the assistant director at the largest Chinese adoption agency in the world. Biological parents advantage children in ways that unrelated adults do not. And we have so normalized all of these forms of modern family that require mother or father loss. I mean, that's really what modern family is. It's a family where the child has had to lose a partial or full relationship with either their mother or father or both. Okay. So biology is so critical to understanding the well-being of children that we spend an entire chapter on it. We go through the data that biological parents invest more money in their children's education, bequeath more money to their kids when they die. They invest more time in their kids than step-parents or cohabiting adults um, or a same-sex unrelated partner. They are more protective. And this is probably the place that is the most critical and the most well-studied, that an unrelated adult drastically increases the likelihood that children will be neglected or abused, so much so that evolutionary biologists have coined a phrase for it. They call it the Cinderella effect because it's exactly what you think it is, right? That the person, the unrelated adult is going to have preferential treatment for their own genetic offspring. And it's so obvious um, that we've literally been making fairy tales about this for centuries. So the biological connection is critical to understand for the well-being of children. It is not up for debate. I mean, it is if you want to live in ideology world. But if you want to live in the natural law world, the social science world, or just the stories of the children themselves that have been passed down through, you know, Snow White, and you don't really have a case against the importance of biological connection. Another aspect of biology that really comes into play once we start talking about reproductive technologies, especially, is that only a child's own biological parents grant something that they crave. So not just the increased connection, investment, protection, but something else that children want. And that is the answer to the question, who am I? It is very hard to answer the question, who am I? That existential question that every human asks at some point, especially beginning in adolescence, unless you can answer the question, whose am I? So what we're seeing today is in children who are adopted, but especially kids created through third-party reproduction, they have a very hard time answering the question, who am I? Because they don't know whose am I. And that is actually why in the United States, there has been a drastic shift in adoption best practice um, for the past 50 years. Like in the 60s and 70s, almost all adoptions were closed adoptions. Like they're like, why did these kids need to know who their birth parents are or even that they were adopted to begin with? That doesn't matter, right? Just safety and love and care and having a mom and dad that's what matters. But now adoptions in the United States are 95% open. Children have some degree of knowledge and connection with their first family because social workers and adoptees all recognize that children benefit from as many connections as possible with their genetic parents, even if they can't be raised by them. So when we understand the importance of biology in children's rights, child flourishing, child identity, that is really the main framework through which you must then view all these other cultural, legal, and technological changes that are coming at, at the family and seeking to overhaul it. I, I think that's excellent. I, I, I just wanted to compliment that. I, I particularly liked in the book, the work that you've put out, I mean, even I've got the print copy of your ARC report here that everyone can read, it's linked down in the description, how you lay out these 
On diffusal techniques for the common arguments levelled by advocates of reproductive technologies to draw false equivalencies between something like surrogacy and adoption, because again, you're an adoptive mother, you've given your case in your own your own work, but the difference between, as you've laid out, adoption and surrogacy is that surrogacy is depriving a child of a parent and it's deliberately inflicting that identity crisis and that biological bereavement on them, whereas adoption is ameliorating a crisis scenario from a child who would otherwise not have parents. That distinction gives us uh, uh, ammunition against the kind of people that want to trip us up by our own standards. And so I do want to come to the surrogacy question because it's been a debate that's been ignited recently with Guy Benson's announcement that the child he commissioned some woman to have on behalf of him and his husband had given birth. Shortly after that, Shane Dawson, a questionable character, I'll link in the description an article from EW Magazine that compiles some of his questionable comments regarding the sexualization of children throughout his life. Well, he's just had a baby via surrogate after destroying 12 of the other IVF candidates. It's an issue that really divided the liberals and the Christians and the reactionaries and I would say true conservatives, particularly among the American anti-woke movement, the kinds that would argue for the inviolability of life, Imago Dei, natural law versus the people who think that technology is to facilitate the freedom of the will and the fulfillment of adult desires, and that that's a good thing. Richard Hanania types, for example. Uh, what's your stance on that? What have you made of that recent debate? And what are the dangers of big fertility in the surrogacy industry? Well, I think that the contrast with adoption is critical. Um, and unfortunately, this does trip a lot of people up. Well, first of all, let's get adoption right. Um, adoption is a just society's response to children who have lost their parents. It is the recognition that children have suffered a primal wound, a significant loss, and it is society's attempt to mend that wound. That is what adoption is. And I will tell you, as an adoptive mom, adoption is suboptimal for the child. Even though adoptive parents are on average, wealthier, better educated, and statistically even spend more time with their kids. They are the exception when it comes to the unrelated adult. That adoptive parents statistically spend more time with their kids than even the average biological parent. Adoptees still do not fare as well because you cannot destroy and deconstruct and detach a child from their mother or father and expect them to just bounce back and be fine. Children are not magnets that you can separate and instantly reattach to whatever adult shows them love and care. Like there actually is a critical bond, especially that takes place in utero between mother and child. And on that foundation, children will build all their future relationships of trust and attachment. And so what we do in adoption is we recognize that the child has lost something that cannot be replaced. And I will tell you and have told many others, I cannot fully compensate for everything that my son has lost but his father and I will do everything that we can to graft him into our family as if he had been born to us and seek to mend his wound. So adoption is a just society's response to children who have lost their parents. Reproductive technologies in general and surrogacy specifically is manufacturing, usually through commercial processes, that very loss. Now, Here's the big difference. Um, well, there's several differences that we go through between reproductive technologies and surrogacy. Why, I'm sorry, adoption and surrogacy. Why adoption is a child-centric institution. Why adoption, when it's properly understood, does support children's rights, but surrogacy violates children's rights. So let's just look at a few of those reasons. Number one, in adoption, the child is the client. If adoption is done right, 
every child that needs parents will find one, but not every adult who wants a kid is going to get one. The goal is to serve the child. Now, in big fertility, the goal is to serve the adults. The adults are the client. The goal is to get them a baby, regardless of the cost, to the child or any other children. So Shane Dawson, right? This child had to lose a relationship with their genetic mother, a relationship with their birth mother, and 10 other kids had to die so that he could get the custom order child that he wanted, right? And so the, so the goal is to serve Shane Dawson. It is not to serve the children. That is number the number one big distinction. Number two, in adoption, adults do hard things on behalf of children. So my husband and I, and a lot of your listeners and followers who have adopted, you understand that it's not easy to adopt because it should never be easy to attach an unrelated child to an adult because of all of the risks that unrelated adults pose to children. So adoptive parents like your listeners, adoptive parents like my husband and I, we went through months of screening and vetting and background checks home studies, references, training, post-placement reports. We had people supervising us, evaluating our own children, looking at our finances, looking at our physical health. And there was no guarantee that we were going to have a child. The goal was for us to do hard things. We had to do hard things to prove that he would be safe and loved in our home. In surrogacy, the child does hard things for the adults. If Shane Dawson had been subjected to those kinds of background checks and screenings and references, I think there's a good chance that nobody would have given him a baby. Because when you say that you get turned on to the pictures of newborn children, when you say that you want to, that you are sexually aroused by prepubescent children, that tends to be a red flag for social workers. And they'll say, I don't think we're going to place a kid with you. Right. And so when you, what you have here is Shane Dawson's children, right? Cause he and his partner each had a custom order child that was genetically related to them, which is just another ding, 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 something's going on here, right? Why did they want a genetic connection with the baby? Well, because they recognize that there's something special about having a biological relationship with your offspring, right? So when it's important to the parents, biology matters, but it doesn't matter enough to cut the child off from their biological parent to make it possible. I mean, it's such an adult centric, adult-obsessed industry, right? So in adoption, the adults do hard things for kids. In surrogacy, the kids do hard things for adults. And here is another really stark factor. Adopted children do not fare as well as children raised by their biological married mother and father, but they do better than kids created through big fertility. Why is that? Why is it? And this, we, the only study that we have that examines outcomes between adoptees and children created through third-party reproduction is comparing adopted children who are raised by neither biological parent and donor-conceived children, sperm donor kids who are always raised by their biological mother, and then often um, you know, a social father or a same-sex parent or a single mother. Why is it that adoptees fare better even though they've lost all of it? And the answer is because they're not being raised by the adults who inflicted the wound. They're being raised by adults who are seeking to mend the wound, right? So both of these kids have a wound, the surrogate born child, the donor conceived child, the one that's been cut off from their genetic mother or father or birth mother, they have a wound. And adoptees, they have a wound. Why is it the adoptees do better? It's because when the adoptees voice their loss to their parents, their parents say, I'm so sorry. That must be so hard. 
you know, maybe we can write your birth mother um, another letter this Christmas and just send her an updated photo. What do these parents say? You should just be grateful to be alive. Do you know how much we paid to bring you into this world? And yeah, honey, you don't need a dad. Love makes a family. You should be grateful that you have two moms. I mean, in one situation, because the adults are not responsible for the wound, you can actually enter into your child's grief. You can shepherd them through their loss. But when you are raising the child and you are the one that decided that their other parents should be gone, absent, missing, or paid to stay out of their life forever, you cannot suffer with your child. You cannot enter into their loss and they are going to have to figure it out alone. And so there's a huge, much greater psychological burden on the big fertility kids than the adopted kids. So anyway, as you can see, these two things are not the same. And it's a great aid to the big fertility people to frame it as just another form of adoption or just another neutral way of creating a family. It is not. It is always the insistent that children lose their right to life, their right to their mother and father, or their right to their birth mother so adults can have what they want. Your framing there genuinely made me go quite cold. Uh, <laughs> I, I think one of the reasons why as well, um, Stefan Molyneux has been doing stuff on this for, for years, so he's, he's very much on your wavelength. One of the reasons why kids have worse outcomes if they are with one of their biological parents who voluntarily deprive them of another child, I think is the same reason why quite a lot of children of divorced parents have worse marriages, even if their divorced parents then remarry, uh, which is something that you put in your book. And that is because it's a lack of credibility and belief in the family model and in what their parents are setting out for them versus the parents like yourself who have come into a child's life and rescued them from adverse circumstances, whereas they wouldn't have otherwise had a parent. To not have that credibility to deprive them of that gendered model of how to expect how to interact with the opposite sex, it really does introduce instability in a child's life. And so it's it's a moral crime to, to do so. As well, the, the, the vetting process that you said about, one of the scariest examples in your Them Before Us book was there was, an, I, I believe it was an Israeli paedophile who'd commissioned a child and then because of the laws, they couldn't take the child out of the household. You know, it's not like you've got right. the vetting processes there you would in the adoption industry to prevent a child from falling into those hands. So, yeah, the, the idea that children should be grateful just to be alive, just to satisfy their parents' desires in that way, without any safeguards against them being put in compromising situations like that, and to permanently destabilize them from having their own families, even if family seems to be so important to their parent that they defied biology and nature to have them, yeah, just unsettles me. I don't know, I don't know what to say beyond that, but you... You really know how well, to get the your, your response is the correct response. You have the correct response. We are buying and selling children. We are manufacturing orphans. We are creating a marketplace in human beings. And that is the only proper response is to be dumbstruck. Because like in this country, we fought a civil war to end the practice of buying and selling humans. And we're bringing it back in the name of progress. And unfortunately, even a lot of conservatives and Christians are celebrating it. Mm. Yeah, well, they didn't realize as well, this was an article that came out fairly recently about the Ukrainian baby factories. I think they're something like 30% of the global surrogacy market. And they interviewed one of the heads of it, and he said, one of them admitted that they wouldn't be able to do it outside of a Soviet country because there wouldn't be women poor and desperate enough to sell their bodies. And then another one of the executives said, what we're aiming for is 
having enough money to invest in experiments that achieve full extra body gestation in the future. Like Brave New World designed a baby pod similar to the Matrix. Do we not see where this is going? Do we not see what this is funding in the name of progress, individual liberty? I, I will put a quick passage to you, if I may, because I did mention Richard Hanania in, in relation to that debate, because I saw one of his tweets as a rejoinder to, I believe it might have been one of yours, actually, was tweeting out a recent Cato Institute study, because we know the Washington perma bureaucracy of, of libertarianism at all costs doesn't really account for children. So there's, there's a quote from here, they say, surrogacy has allowed some couples with major fertility challenges to have their own genetically related children. Critics minimize the substantial benefits associated with giving and receiving the gift of life itself. Moreover, attempts to limit women's ability to choose to be a gestational carrier indicate that critics believe women cannot make important personal or medical decisions for themselves, even following counselling and informed consent. Um, how do you take the charge of being called a misogynist, Katie? How does that sit with you? Well, I, I will say that it is actually very important how we frame this debate. I don't frame this as an issue of um, exploitation of women. A lot of women love this. A lot of all of the women love it. The women selling their eggs, the women renting their bodies, the women commissioning the children. And so I actually think that that feminist argument, which is the grounds for the banning of surrogacy across much of Europe. I mean, it is grounded in the exploitation of women. I actually think that it's not a significant art. I don't think it's substantial. I don't think it has enough teeth. And the women often consent. They love it. You know, they consent as much as they can to the fact that we don't exactly know what these drugs are doing to their bodies. But you know what? A lot of women at the end of this process are very, very happy. And I think that women can say, hey, I understand these risks or what we know to be about them, and I'm going to undertake them. Fine. The baby doesn't consent. That this is an act of injustice against the child is the only way to argue against surrogacy, in my opinion. Because if you don't, then you start to say, well, here's an exception for me, right? Because it's the child's going home with their genetic parents, and it's my sister who's doing it for free. I mean, you are always going to be able to crack the door open on some level unless you argue from the position of children have a right to their mother and father. We should not intentionally inflict a primal wound on them just because an adult wants something. If a child has tragically lost their mother, then we will seek to mend their loss through adoption. But children are not items. They're, they, like you said at the beginning of this conversation, cannot advocate on their own behalf. They can't, right? And until they get to be what I have found is late 20s, like you have to be 10 years out of the home to start to have the space to process and reflect on your upbringing um, to be able to speak for yourself, to not be so emotionally or financially dependent on your parents that you can actually say, it was really rough not having a dad, right? I mean, it takes a long time for kids to be able to say, this harmed me. So I'm not down with the feminist arguments and Cato can say whatever they want. And all of that, whatever, that Cato report that they did, like, oh, there's no ill effects. That's because they haven't been studies, you idiot. You absolute idiot. I mean, it is the first time our species has made motherless children. It's the first time. And we aren't even studying, we don't even know how many babies are created in the laboratory every year. Like, do you understand how hard it is to just find statistics on what do they do with all those embryos? For the last, you know, seven years, we've been saying there's a million children on ice in this country. We've been saying it for seven years. I'm sure that it has increased, but we don't know because there's no requirement for tracking or record keeping 
What do, what happens to these babies? How many of them are donated to research? How many of them make it to be born alive? I mean, the best that we have is about 7%, but that's from these, you know, like throwaway leftover numbers that some fertility in industry agents would choose to disclose at certain points. Like, we have no idea what is going on. We don't know where these babies are going. We're not tracking them. I mean, we do we do this better with organ donation, registering, tracking, monitoring, prohibiting payment because it actually clouds people's judgment. So we don't know anything about what's happening, but shouldn't we, since we've never done this before, default to, hey, this is the only person in your life that you'll be connected to by a literal cord Maybe there's a special relationship there that ought to be like respected and protected. And instead we are moving, like you said, to the land of artificial wombs. I have an article coming out on that hopefully in the next couple of weeks, but that is, that is coming soon, right? China already has robot nannies that they are developing. We already have just stated successfully a midterm lamb in a bio bag and they hope to replicate that technology for preterm babies. Um, I mean, like, and I'll tell you what, it would be such a win for big fertility if they could cut women out of the process altogether. I mean, honestly, women are the most expensive part of the baby assembly um, process. You know, sperm is pretty easy to access and cheap. Eggs, harder to get out, a little more expensive, but whew, that womb. That womb costs a lot of money. And if we could just have no wombs needed, we would be able to produce babies on such a mass scale. And then it would be easier to just have 10. Like, let's just put 10 in, 10 babies and 10 different artifacts. We'll have that robot nanny adjust the oxygen level and the nutrition level. And then, of course, if there's a baby that doesn't have the genetic markers that we want, isn't like thriving the way we intend to, then those can just be donated to research. And then we'll keep the two that, you know, one boy, one girl, um, and the hair color that we like. And then, um, you know, we'll see how they do. And then, oh, and you know, here's the other thing. It's such an inconvenience when you want to terminate a baby in a surrogate who has actually grown attached to the child. They can be so resistant. <laughs> those women, sometimes they won't let you carve the child up and kill them um, because they love them, even though they're not genetically related. So boy, it would be a lot easier if we could just terminate those babies without the emotional involvement of a real life woman. I mean, do you know where we're going? It is nuts. And honestly, conservatives and Christians need to get this damn straight right now because we are moving into a place that honestly, like Orwell could never have foreseen. Well, if them before us becomes gets all of its goals accomplished and you shut down the organization, at least you've got a surefire career in the future of playing a movie villain because bloody hell, that was the most convincing yeah. steel man of a dystopia I've ever heard. There was- yeah. Oh yeah, sign me up baby, I got you. Yeah, well there, there, was, there was a particularly horrific story recently where a gay couple in California had commissioned a woman to be their surrogate. She found that she had breast cancer and wanted to undergo chemotherapy to save her own life. And they said, well, it might damage our genetic material in the child and we don't want our genes out there with a disability to so terminate mm -hmm. it immediately. So they forced her to have an early delivery and then unfortunately the baby died during the delivery process. No consideration yeah. for the well-being of the child there at all. Yeah, big fertility, right? Especially when you're paying six figures for a child, which is typically what a surrogacy will run you. Um, abortion functions as quality control and quantity control. Like 
this is a way to make sure that you not just get the baby you want, but you get the baby that you want when you want it. I mean, they didn't want a preterm baby with all of the accompanying long possible long-term health risks. Um, and even though she had lined up people that would, would have loved to adopt this baby, they didn't want somebody else raising their baby. So, so again, genetics matter, matter when the adults want it to matter. And if they don't want it to matter, it doesn't matter. I mean, this is such an adult obsessed world. We have got to start to recenter the conversation about around the rights and well-being of kids. Mm. There was also a really disturbing bioethics journal entry last year. I don't know if you saw it, but they were trying to argue that the bodies of uh, comatosed or dead women could be used as surrogacy chambers with their express consent before they died, of course, and with payments to the family. Because there's absolutely no perverse incentives to forge a will there. Yeah, really, really creepy. So as for the legislative framework around big surrogacy, children's rights, obviously you've been involved in advising even to the level of the UN who have said some spurious things in the last little while around whether or not children can consent and things like that. Um, what would you advocate for in terms of regulating big fertility? You need to ban all third-party reproduction. It is the buying and selling of children. And then you need to take a very, very hard look at IVF in general. Uh, once you're making babies in laboratories, it's very hard to say, hey, you can't buy and sell those babies. You can't separate them from one or both genetic parents. And so Germany has some more realistic limitations on it in terms of making sure that we don't have a human rights crisis of a million plus humans stored on ice. You know, you have to look very, very seriously at limiting um, IVF. It's so fascinating to me. Those people who are on the right who um, are like, what's the big deal? IVF is just about babies and don't we want everyone to have babies? There was a massive freak out in this country after the Dobbs decision was announced, um, in essence saying, by fertility doctors, saying, hey, if this trigger law goes into place and my, my red state defines life as beginning at conception, do you understand that like our fertility business is going to have to close and move out of state? Because if you believe that babies are humans at the moment of conception, that destroys our business model because the vast majority of embryos that we make in a laboratory are not going to make it or they're going to be graded and deselected or they're going to be determined to be the wrong sex and donated to research or they're going to be frozen and saved for a later use or they're going to be selectively reduced, which is aborted 12 to 20 weeks because we don't like how the child is developing or there's too many. I mean, the whole big fertility industry, regardless of where it's operating, it is built upon violating children's right to life and right to their mother and father. There's no profit doing it any other way. And there's really no market for doing it any other way. So if we're going to look at this from the perspective of the rights of the child, we will have conversations about severely limiting or eliminating uh, IVF and we will ban all forms of third-party reproduction, which really categorically is child trafficking in the strictest sense of the term. Mm. I'm completely on board with that. I think that's going to be a, a real fissure issue in the anti-woke coalition between the liberals, libertarians, and conservatives and Christians in the years to come. But wish you all the best with that particular battle. If I might switch gears slightly then, because that was your 2020 book. The book that you've just released with Stacey is about your experience 
the threats that kids face after emerging from the womb, even if they have two loving parents being trapped as you are on the West Coast, surrounded by people that want to corrupt them constantly. A lot of it was anecdotal because you've done seemingly an excellent job of shielding your own kids from all of the wokeness that has pervaded schools. A lot more parents have become aware of what's on their curriculum, be it critical race or queer and gender theory, since monitoring their remote learning stuff under lockdown. What do you advise parents do to shield their kids from the creeping ideology that they're seeing in the education system? Well, Stacy is an incredible co-author, um, and we fill the book with, well, we've, we've outlined 10 different chapters for you, right? 10 different chapters that identify different principles that will help you to inculcate a robust, conservative worldview in your children. And it's very important that it's not just an anti-left or anti-woke uh, or anti-progressive worldview. It is very important to teach your children what they are for. And so that's why we talk, that's why the title is Raising Conservative Kids in a Woke City. You need to teach them to be for conserving the best principles from the natural world, the world of economics, the world of biology, and real history. So the book is about, first of all, you yourself have to become an expert on these topics. You want your child to be able to resist indoctrination. You want them to be able to spot the lie. You want them to be able to stand alone if needed. You want them to be able to rebuke or rebut um, a teacher or a friend who is coming at them with something that uh, somebody who is trying to advance a destructive or distorted ideology. If you want that in your child, you have to go first. They first have to see you being that kind of person. They have to see you engaging in arguments respectively. They have to see you listening to great podcasts and watching great videos. They have to see you reading great books. And then you slowly bring them into your world. Like we, there's a chapter, um, chapter five, where it's sort of our discipleship model of I do, you watch. I do, you help. You do, I watch. I'm sorry, you do, I help, and then you do, I watch. It's the slow handoff. So first they see you living and articulating these conservative principles. Then they help you. You pull them in and they help you have those conversations or listen to that book. And then automatically around age 10, 11, 12, they will start to want to do this on their own. And then you are going to be at the point of helping them with that challenging assignment or helping them engage in that Instagram debate or whatever it is. And then by the time they're ready to leave high school, this slow handoff of years and years and years of watching you do it, helping you do it, you helping them, and then you're just sitting back and you're watching them do it on their own. So we've got lots of tips in there, but I, I want to say that it can be done. And not only can it be done, but this probably is how parenting should have been all along. We've probably been too relaxed for too long thinking there's no major threats. If I just give them love and care and take them to church every now and then, that's enough. It is not enough. It is war. I mean, it's war in Seattle. I assume that even if you're living, I know that even if you're living in a red state or a more conservative country or place and your kids are going to private school, they've got friends with pronouns in their bios, right? They're listening and watching materials that are telling them the exact opposite of the good, the true, and the beautiful. And you have to be very intentional, very purposeful, and start very young 
to build in a robust worldview that can stand against the constant assault. So not only can it be done, but it can be done beautifully. And, you know, the response that people give to Stacy and I is, I can't believe that you're living there and largely sending your kids to public school. How on earth did you do it? And the answer is, the world has gone so nuts, right? Leftism has has become so outlandish that it actually serves as an incredible foil and proof of the goodness of a conservative and Christian worldview. It is very obvious to see which of those two ideologies is more hospitable to honest answers to their honest questions, which one aligns better with reality, which one leads to flourishing and health, which one lends itself to productivity and joy. And the answer is very obviously the world that is seeking to conserve the best of the biological, economic, um, and historical realities. Mm, yeah, if you have a stable familial foundation, if your parents are proactively transmitting the wholesome cultural values that were once just the air in which we, the, the water in which we swim, the air in which we breathe, then you're inoculated on first contact with the sort of consensus reality of leftism that is, is funneled at you with every institution. It actually makes you a stronger advocate for the kind of American conservatism and Christianity that you wrote about in the book. I think that's also why looking into the trans issue with a level of depth over the course of the last year, the recurrent theme that I've always seen of these 4,000-fold increase in particularly young girls going to things like the Tavistock Clinic and uh, falling prey to the Lisa Littman's term social contagion, rapid onset gender dysphoria. They're trying to achieve an escape velocity from an abusive or negligent home environment from their maltreatment because of their sex and taken in by friendship yeah. groups seeking peer approval, seeking validation online. So that kind of proactive inoculation against the messaging from the institutions is, is very good. I, I actually wanted to conjoin that with one of the, the final points that I thought to bring up um, in that something that quite a few people like Jordan Peterson and Mary Harrington have hit upon is that those publicly funded institutions seem to be suffering from an excess of pathological compassion. This is the sort of devouring mother idea of where everywhere should be a safe space. You should never be offended or upset at any point. And a lot of this debate, as you said with the surrogacy debate, is always framed from what can mothers do? How is big fertility impacting mothers, not just their children? What's the role of young men who don't have kids yet, present fathers, men in public life, what do we do to assist the advocacy of the rights of children? Because I am interested. I just want to help as best I can. Uh, well, no, I hope I'm not uh, sounding sacrilegious, but um, you need to increase and we need to decrease. Uh, that's what I would say is there is so much need for the masculine presence and the masculine voice in all of these institutions. And it's very hard because in all these institutions, you're, you men are being demonized and fingered as the problem, right? These institutions are struggling because you horrible patriarchs. But the reality is that masculine leadership, I would say, so if I get to write another book, it is going to be called headship. And it is going to be the importance of male headship in the home and in the church. In these two institutions responsible for human formation, God has ordained for men to be at the head right? Not men to be the chauvinist, dominant, not women to be the doormats. That's not what real headship is. But there is a role for leadership by men in these two critical human institutions. Um, 
And that's because we can't form humans properly without both the male and female presence. And the crazy thing about men is they need to be needed. And that's exactly why God said, here's this role that women literally cannot fill. We need a man to do it. And you look at especially the institutions of the family and the church and the parties that are saying, actually, women could totally do that. Women can be priests. Women can be pastors. Women can be the heads of the home. We don't need men in the home at all. Um, And you know what happens when you make men optional? They leave. They leave. They're not going to fight a woman to be the head of an institution, right? Good, As Joe Rigney points out, good men are conditioned not to fight women. So what happens in those institutions? Men leave or bad men come in who are fine fighting women. And honestly, I think that's what That's really what the transgender movement is when you're talking about locker rooms, sports, public spaces. It's the bad men who are coming in to fight the women. So men are so important, so important. And, you know, I personally, um, I will fight on behalf of children. I will lose friends and defend these principles because I know that children are being victimized. But I don't naturally like to fight I don't like to argue endlessly on Twitter. I still feel a little squeamish and um, shy in some ways about duking it out. And I'm always so grateful when a clear-minded man gets on the thread and just starts slapping Uh, because I'm like, he's ready to fight. And so there is something about that aggressive, properly channeled aggression um, that society needs. I would just pray that more men understand that that aggressiveness needs to be channeled towards defending the good, true, and beautiful, and that you don't let all the people who are saying, you know, masculinity in and of itself is toxic knock you down, uh, because I I can't fight this alone. I don't fight well um, in those, like, combat situations so I, um, I worry, you know, I've got two sons and two daughters and I'm much more concerned about my sons growing up in this world than my daughters. Um, it is very hard. All good men are tender um, internally. Good men, every good man that is very masculine, who's a cop or in the military, you touch the things they care about and they're very tender. It is an attribute of good men. And so this, this, notion that we can just badmouth, deride, degrade men and have them seamlessly walk through it is such a a lie, a a cultural lie, like from the pit. I feel for men having to battle back all of these lies about them, but I pray that they will find a social circle that speaks truth about the goodness of their male bodies and their male tendencies, and that they will figure out a way to fight nonetheless Maybe in a war, because I think that that's coming, but definitely in the culture wars where we need that masculine voice and that masculine presence so greatly. Mm. So that's the, that's the call to action in public life. And we've heard, as you've eloquently expressed, the adverse health and life outcomes that a child experiences if their father is absent, either deprived by a fertility technology or divorce and family breakdown. So let's spin a positive narrative for the most important institution of the family. 
What role complementary to that of the mother should the father be playing? What sort of boundaries should he be setting beyond just physically defending it with the Second Amendment that you guys have that I very much feel envious of? What is the importance of a father in the home and what should he be doing? Well, not sure where to begin with that. He just needs to be the man. You don't need to be like the mom. You should not be like the mom. You can, you cannot be like the mom. And you know, when I'm not writing books and doing interviews, I'm a pastor's wife. And I've had a lot of up close and personal uh, encounters with married couples. And there's always a tension between husband and wife, mother and father, when it comes to raising kids. The wife is always going to emphasize equity, fairness, um, caregiving and nurture. And the dads always tend to emphasize pushing boundaries, risk-taking, physical play, aggression. And it's hard to be in a marriage with somebody who is that different from you. But the benefits to children are off the charts. And we have an entire chapter on this, chapter three, in our book on gender called Gender Matters about the distinct ways that mothers and fathers interact with their children. And I would say that the importance of fathers um, is the most evident in the lives of children that didn't have them. So, you know, we talk in the book and in our work about, you know, what do children living in poverty, children on the street, teens who commit suicide, teens who drop out of school, girls who get pregnant as teenagers, what do they have in common? Well, those demographics are overpopulated with fatherless children. That's what they have in common. 90% of kids that are on the street didn't have a dad in the home. 63% of teen mothers grew up without a father. 63% of teenagers who kill themselves don't have a dad. You know, 71% of high school dropouts, you're four times more likely to live in poverty without a dad. And it's not just two parents, right? And there's a new book that's out right now called The Two-Parent Privilege, which is almost right. It's almost right. Kids do need two parents. But there was a UK study done in 2018 that said it's not just two parents, it's actually the child's own mother and father that statistically benefits them. And this study showed lone mothers, right, who were raising their children alone and who ended up getting married to a stepfather. And those children had outcomes that were about the same as kids that were raised by a lone mother. But if the lone mother married the child's biological father, the child's own father, then the child sometimes could catch up to where the intact, always intact children had been. So it's not a two-parent privilege. It is not a any two will do. It is a you, the father, can give something to your children that no other adult, no other woman, no other man can give them, only you. You, if you have made a baby, there are things that you can give to them, protectedness, investment, that distinct male presence, and the biological identity that your children need to get only from you. You are irreplaceable in the life of your kids. It is you that privileges your children, not any random adults, not just love from two women or 10 women or another guy, you, only you. So you're not optional, not for your kids and certainly not for their mother. So that's, that's the message that we need to be sharing is, yeah, we want men that protect and provide because the reality is that women, if they could choose for themselves, 
would not work full time, especially when children are young. Women, if you ask them what they want, if they're free to choose, they will choose to be home with their young children. And then they will choose to have flexible careers so they can still be home and available for their kids when they're high schoolers and teenagers. Yes, we need men to protect and provide, but we need you beyond your utilitarian benefit. We need you, you, not just a guy, but you, the father of our children. You give something to the kids in the family that no other human can offer them. Mm. So the role of the father isn't just protection and provision, it's also to be present. That's the third P. And I will take it up with Melissa Cody because I'm hoping to speak to her soon because her book is next on my list. So that's, Good. Uh, Good. you've armed you with the framing, Katie. Thank you very much. So if there's nothing else on the itinerary because I've taken up a lot of your valuable time, please feel free to direct our listeners and viewers to your work. I've linked plenty of stuff down in the description. You've given more than a compelling sales pitch, but enlighten the rest of us? Well, there's a lot going on at them before us. I am amazed at, I'm overwhelmed by the amount of influence and opportunities that we have. So this year, 2024, uh, is we're just going all out, mainly because I'm so sick of playing defense. I'm so sick of just battling back damaging narratives and fighting horrible bills. So we are really going on the offensive um, in terms of culture shaping and taking back lost legal ground and building coalitions that can fight global big fertility. And honestly, we've got some plans to go after big corporations too, because they've had a huge hand in undoing the family through their corporate benefits. So um, come to thembeforeus.com, subscribe to our newsletter and just follow us. Find us on social media. Let us equip you to defend children and to frame everything that you think and say about marriage and family from the perspective of what about the kid? Like they can't do this themselves. There's hardly any political leaders that are willing to do it. Academia is, has been captured. Entertainment is in the tank. There's no other major institutions that are going to recognize and defend the fundamental rights of children. It's just you. It's just me and truth. That's what we've got. So I hope that you'll join us. It really is, it really is the battle of our time. If we cannot secure the fundamental rights of children, if we cannot ensure individual thriving for children, there will be no social thriving. Our nation will not survive. This is no longer a matter of, hey, is this good for us? It is a matter of, will we continue as a species? Like that is where we are at with this. And it is the child-centric narrative that children have fundamental rights that all adults must recognize and respect. That is the only way forward, not just to revive our society, but also to fight back against the very real, very dystopic threats that are coming against us as a human species. So that's what we're doing is um, we are starting and advancing a global movement um, that is going to center all of these conversations around the well-being of kids. And there is no other way, not the feminist perspective, I would say not even the Christian perspective that is going to be able to accomplish this kind of culture, world shaping change. It has to be from the position of advocacy on behalf of children. So come and join us and follow our work and we would just love to know you. Well, God bless you for what you do, Katie. With, uh... 
I look forward to whenever our continents cross again, catching back up with you. But thank you so much for the time that you've given to me today for all of our audience members who continue to support us so that we can continue to have these conversations. Thank you very much for watching. And until next time, goodbye.